Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Eye on the Cure podcast. I am Ben Shaberman with the Foundation Fighting Blindness, and I am very delighted today to have as our guest, Michael Stone. And Michael has a retinal disease. We're going to talk more about that. And he's an incredible athlete among so many other things. And to say that he hasn't let vision loss get in his way is quite the understatement. And let me tell you why I say that before we start talking uh, to Michael here. He is a 17-time Ironman triathlete. And the Ironman, for those of you that don't know... It includes a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike race, and if that's not enough, a 26.2-mile run after that, all in one competition. So anyway, he's done 17 Ironmans, and since 2000, he's competed in about 200 different races, and that includes running races, biking skiing, other triathlons. So in addition to all that athletic stuff, he's written a book called I Envy, which is a a great collection of stories of people with vision loss who give their perspective and, and their tales. He paints tactile pictures. And I don't know, perhaps this is even more impressive than anything else. You play multiple musical instruments, including the guitar and the violin. How many people can play the violin? That's incredible. So I got to meet Michael back, I want to say it was 2006, 2007. We were working on our annual report for the Foundation Fighting Blindness. He was our cover guy. And one of the pictures that we included in the annual report was you after this biking wipeout. Michael, welcome to the podcast, but I want to hear the backstory of that wipeout. Thank you. Gosh, it's funny. You just reminded me of our, our first counter. Uh, with, with respect to the violin, though, I, I didn't say I'm good at it, uh, just for the record. <laughs> uh, that bike crash was very profound because that actually happened in, the, in Ironman, Wisconsin, in 2005 and that was a a very profound uh race for me on on so many levels uh for one thing it was the i i i was the first race i was doing to raise money for the foundation for for ffb and it was my first time meeting other people and it was it was spectacular the local uh a regional person that was in Chicago at the time really kind of helped me through that period. But we were doing fundraising and um, I, I got actually the Madison blindness community kind of came out for it. And there was a brother and sister, both with ushers who came and just spent time with me. And it was, it was a very emotional experience. At the same time, it was uh, on September 11th and it happens to be my father's birthday. I know he shares it with another uh, dreadful day, but, uh, it's uh and he was out there at that race and everything everything was coming to to that but what had happened was uh about a kilometer into the bike 
triathletes, unfortunately, are notoriously poor bike handlers. And, uh, I'm, and I'm going on record saying that, which I'm sure that'll be interesting, but it, it's, uh, and they were all warned, um, you know, one thing about doing an Ironman on your, on your bicycle for 112 miles, you have to have a lot of nutrition on there. And so these people in front of me weren't, did not secure their bottles that were hanging on the sort of the rear seat. And they went over a bump and all of their bottles jettisoned and one of them lunged into my front wheel, uh, just took a bad bounce and flipped me over. And I'm only a kilometer into a 181 kilometer bike race, uh, you know, and I was sitting there on the side with my bike was broken. My shoulder was dislocated and I was completely lacerated. Um, and it was the first time I ever had any kind of a bike crash. And, and I couldn't believe that my day was going to be over at that moment. And uh, I was I was heartbroken. And I mean, it was just so. And, you know, and I, I was at the beginning of a time where doctors were saying, you know, I shouldn't be able to do the things I'm doing. Um, I was riding a bike independently at that point. Um, I had a decent amount of peripheral vision back then because my, my eyes uh, impacted my central vision first. And I had learned to compensate. And there's more as to how I did that. But I got up and I rode the bike, uh, the, the whole thing one armed. Uh, did the whole thing, raced, uh, did, did the run. And I have spectacular memories of that community being out there. And really my father, in many ways, being out there. My brothers ran the finish line with me. And my youngest brother uh, also has RP. We have X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. And um, my middle brother, who's fully sighted and has a great head of hair, by the way, um, uh, lifted my shoulder, lifted my arm up at the finish line. And it just made a loud pop sound. And that's how it got put back into place. Uh, so I did the whole race that way, including the, the marathon, uh, just, just with my arms sort of dangling there. Um, to this day, it was, it was not one of my best time finishes, but it was one of my highest placements because it was a very brutal weather day. It was, uh, extremely hot conditions, uh, pushing a hundred degrees and, um, and with high winds. And so the majority of the field dropped out. So that's why my placement was as high as it was not. Uh, and I just, I just had the ability to persevere, but I think it was that, uh, the local blindness community, uh, specifically the people with, um, inherited retinal disease that came out that really pushed me through that. And this was the first time my parents had ever come to watch me do an Ironman. And it was just, it was such an important day. And, uh, you know, out of all my races, that's a very powerful memory. And I just, it's, it's amazing that you have that photo. I, I actually had forgotten about that, but obviously I, I can remember it quite well. <laughs> well, that was the first photo I ever saw of you. So uh, my former colleague, Allie was sharing your story and the photos because she wrote that story. And I saw that photo and I'm like, wow, this guy has RP He's doing triathlons. He wipes out, but yet you kept going. And, and that's pretty remarkable. And I think an overarching theme for you is it's almost like your RP, your vision loss has driven you to do more as opposed to maybe the average person with vision loss who might be a little reticent to take risks and do things. You're doing everything humanly possible to push the limits. That's a very profound statement on, on, on your part, Ben. I'll tell you why. Because I was terrified of sports growing up. So I, growing up with a vision impairment that I didn't know that I understood. We didn't have it defined back then. It was a lot more common 
back there for people to kind of go miss or, un, or undiagnosed. Uh, and part of that was because I had a grandfather who was misdiagnosed with macular degeneration, but actually had retinitis pigmentosa. And so they were always kind of looking for the wrong thing. And uh, sometimes the stars have to align. But I was that kid, you know, eight years old playing Little League who sat up there to bat and got hit in the face with a ball. And and I would run the wrong direction. I couldn't see the ball amongst other things in a classroom. I was humiliated and also just petrified. I, I, my, I used to have my mom write doctor's notes just so I wouldn't have to run the mile in PE class. I, I was terrified of anything sports. Um, and I didn't have that drive to do it. So I buried myself into music. Uh, you know, and and that's and that's really where it was. I mean, and, and, you know, it's ironic that music is my biggest passion uh, to this day. So what's amazing about that is I, I wonder sometimes if I had been properly diagnosed as a kid, if I would have done the things I would have done. And as an adult, I found out little by little in my first Ironman, for example, I made a wrong turn. And I'll never forget the marshals was in New Zealand. He, the course marshal yelled, what are you blind? And I remember having that sick feeling because I've heard that my whole life. You know, what are you blind? What are you blind? And and I'm out there doing it the best I can. And it, it did motivate me uh, to go on and try things and redefine what limitations are. And, you know, sometimes I go too far and we have to figure it out. That's the one thing with these uh, with that level of blindness, you have to find your way of doing it. There is no right way to do it. There's your way to do it. And and I think we're seeing that more and more. And because of these wonderful uh, podcasts and all these, these beacon stories and all these things that we're doing, we're finding more and more of that, that there's there's people out there that are finding their way of doing things. Um, you know, look at two blind brothers, you know, one of the most creative things I've ever heard. And, you know, having a blind brother <laughs> myself, it's always very affectionate. And, you know, and obviously, I'm a big fan of those guys uh, for a lot of reasons, also a customer. But yes, it is my blindness, I think, in many ways. I don't know that I would have had the drive to keep trying to figure things out. And it's amazing, though, on how all of this leads into something. And I'm going to tell you an unsolicited story real quick, um, because a lot of people don't know this. So my my greatest hero in the blindness world is Gordon Gunn. No questions asked. He is step above whatever human is, you know, and, and I can go on for a lot of reasons. But that same year that you're talking about, I had the privilege of sitting down, having dinner with them. It was a breakout session where we used to have the day of science meetings. And in that room was my parents and Lily was there and, uh, and the former CEO was in there. And it was like it was Gordon and me and everybody else. They were doing their own thing. And Gordon said to me, you know, I was you know, moving through triathlon and he wanted to talk about skiing. And, and skiing was special to him. And uh, I told him that was one of the biggest things I gave up. I gave up skiing uh, in early 2000. Skiing was horrible. My family would take these awesome trips to Aspen and we're very privileged to be able to do things like that. And we'd come back and my mom would say, how was your day? Everybody would be joyful but me. And, uh, you know, I'll save the word that I would use to describe the day. And I, you know, it would be out there. I'd be skiing in the poles, other people just fought, tripping for no reason. I was, it was just another sport I couldn't do. And it was heartbreaking for me. So I gave it up. And actually that gave me a little bit of this desire to get into running and cycling and trying other things, uh, to be honest. But Gordon sat next to me in that room and I was down in Orlando actually that year. And he said, I really want you to rethink skiing. 
goes, I love skiing. There's nothing like it. And he's describing what it's like to be guided. And it sat with me and sat with me because here I was trying something different. And I, you know, skiing then and I just, it was such a horrible thing. And now, of course, I'm doing it again. And I, I have to tell you, uh, it really was Gordon who inspired me to, to, to look at it with a different perspective, you know, and I, we can, I could talk on and on and how much I love that man, but it's, it's, uh, it was, it's, it's amazing. And I think about him every time I, I clip it into my skis now, every time, you know, so, yeah. And, and Gordon really is our rock star and he's been <laughs> inspirational for so many people with retinal diseases and without, I mean, he's my hero as well. One thing I want to get back to, you, you were talking about when you were a kid, how, how you were challenged by a lot of the team sports, which just about all require some hand-eye coordination or following a ball or whatever. Was there a moment or something that happened that made you think, hmm, maybe I'll try running or maybe I'll try something else? Was there a certain event that led you to think about one of those? Activities? Yeah, but not it, not as a kid. Um, as a kid, I was too way too fearful of it. Um, you know, it really takes an advocate. Uh, and, and I think the, the you know, you see – it's kind of a very dovetailed scenario where you have some parents that are just amazing. Okay. You're not going to do this. So we're going to figure that out. You know, David Brent did that with his son and they figured out how to swim and he became this phenomenal swimmer. You know, things were very weird sometimes growing up and, you know, your parents have their own stories uh, and life is hard. You know, at some point you grow up and you realize that your parents are people too. And, and you're not even aware of the challenges that they're, that they're having sometimes physically. And, you know, plus I had two younger brothers as well. So I stayed away from it. But what would happen was the pivotal moment, believe it or not, was after undergrad, after college, I'm back in Chicago and a buddy of mine, a good buddy of mine, um, who uh, actually came and surprised me at a, at a ski race last year in Utah by the name of Joe Carpenter, introduced me to rock climbing. And, uh, and then years later, by the way, we found out that Joe's brother, who was kind of like that big brother, used to beat us up, you know, in a playful kind of way, actually has retinitis pigmentosa. And we, it's just, it blows my mind that that's in fact the case. But Joe took me rock climbing and I was very scared and we did it. Uh, and then I started climbing at a gym and then we used to take our sort of weaker weekend warrior trips from Chicago to places and go climbing. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, I, I can do this. It's hard. I can do this. And I had people that would kind of call out some of the moves here and there uh, for me, but I'm like, I, I'm doing this. So that also got me back into to, to hiking and appreciating the mountains. And I was also doing martial arts at the time. And I started to kind of try different things like, well, maybe this, maybe that. And uh, in 2000, um, I was I was already living in Boulder at this time. I moved out here in 97. I, I was really struggling with rock climbing. Uh, it was taking me way too long. Um, I couldn't see my hands or my feet anymore. And um, it was just, I got scared. And so that's what inspired me to start running. And, and my then girlfriend, uh, who's still a very good friend of mine, asked me if I was running this weekend. And I'm like, what is that? She's like, it's the Memorial Day 10K that we have called the Boulder Boulder. I'm like, no. I'm like, and I, and I had to do the math, like 10 kilometers in from US. So, you know, what do I know? I'm like, oh, six miles. I'm like, okay, I don't know that I've ever run more than two in my life, but I'm doing it. 
And I had the time of my life. To this day, it's probably one of the most magical things. I mean, I've done well, it's over 220 races since then. And that was one of the most magical moments ever. I had no idea how fast was fast. I didn't care, but I ran 6.2 miles. And, uh, and it was just a spectacular experience on a beautiful Colorado day. And that, that was, that transformed me. I wanted that feeling over and over and over again. So, okay. I, you know, I saw it, but you know, one thing sort of led to another. And then eventually I found triathlon that year as well. And, you know, triathlon is a very romantic sport in many ways is because you could be a novice to sort of below average in terms of pacing swimmer, biker, and runner, and be a great triathlete just by persevering, as we talked about with the with the Wisconsin race, if you have the heart. And I think people with disabilities in general, we just sort of have that heart. We have this will to try to push through things. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, you know, maybe on the dangerous side and sometimes not. Contrary to popular belief, I am not a, an adrenaline junkie. I actually shy away from that feeling. I like kind of a zen i take like a zen like approach to things um i try to breathe and just stay very very calm even when i'm moving at high speeds but you know a whole other thing but uh yeah i think it all it all kind of played into the other but running uh pushed me to try something else and eventually i you know next thing i know was a triathlete you know triathletes in boulder colorado kind of grow on trees everybody literally everybody and their mothers and grandmothers are triathletes out here it's that's funny. You know, you seem to have, as I listen to you tell your stories, you seem to have this interesting relationship with fear in that fear has driven you to do so many things and fear doesn't go away either. It sounds like for you. Can you talk a little more about that? When, when you, when you decide, oh, I'm going to do this Ironman or I'm go- going to go skiing down this really steep mountain, do you approach those situations with a little apprehension or fear? Then I don't walk out of my front door without fear. I, I live with it with everything I do. And, and as my eyes deteriorated, uh, the most insignificant life tasks, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I, I putting toothpaste on a toothbrush. You know, um, cooking my meals, uh, all of these things are, is, there's always this, this aspect of fear, uh, that's with it. What has happened, and, and as you pointed out, as I've developed a relationship with it, you know, I, I think that people forget that, you know, fear is a part of us, right? And, and, and you can't go around beating yourself up. Beating yourself up is destructive. And, and fear is there for a reason. It's there to keep us safe. It's there for us to, for a reason. And if you, and if you can find an attitude towards befriending it and realizing that it's, it's a companion, you, it, you, you come along for the ride and let's figure out how we're going to do it. And you, and you got, and we have to learn little tricks on how to deal with it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, parents giving their kids timeouts, right? You know, the, you know, Joey, do you need a timeout? Well, you got to give that to yourself and you may have to step aside for a second and breathe. For 20 seconds or however long. I mean, today we had a massive snowstorm and I went out with my dog and my neighbors rudely have not shoveled. So we had to figure this out and step by step and, and just to go out for a walk. You know, I think, and you know, the guide dog's another conversation, but, uh, but fear is, is, is this constant companion that I have grown partially to love. 
it, it isn't ambivalence because I, like I said, it, it's an attitude adjustment. And on, uh, you know, before the start, you and I chatted a little bit about attitude because uh, that's the one thing that nothing that it's the one choice that we have in in life is attitude. The the world could take everything away from us, um, as as a lot of people have seen. Um, in the last couple of years with the restrictions and, and challenges that have come along with this time period time, but our attitude is what keeps us going. And, you know, it, but it's bold. You have to, you have to, you have to want to do it and you have to want to put one foot in front of the other and learn how to, to kind of change your attitude towards fear. I don't believe it's a, uh, an overcoming thing. Um, I don't believe it's it, that fear is your enemy. That you're supposed to to grit at it with, with aggression. I think it's it's a it's a it's a much more loving uh, attempt, and uh, it's it's and it's very important. You know, one of the great things that come along with having a disability is that you know we learn that the detriment of multitasking. We can hurt ourselves. You know, we can cut ourselves with you know if we're trying to cut our food or burn ourselves if we're doing things. You know, with that, you have to do one thing at a time. And that's kind of the trick with fear. You have to limit it and you, and you take on one thing at, in that moment and you try to do it the best you possibly can. And then you move on to the next thing. Right. I, I think your comment about attitude is so important. And at the end of the day, sometimes if I speak for myself, it's just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other and just going to the next step and getting a little momentum and then realizing, okay, I'm on my way here. But I do want to get back to your guide dog because I've seen videos and pictures and your dog is amazing, Gio. Is yeah. he a lab? He looks like a lab. She is a Labrador, yes. Um, uh, and not happy with me because she's locked out of the room right now. But uh, she is a, a canine Swiss army knife that came with the you know the you just keep opening up the the little tools and you, you there's a one more cool thing that she does and another thing and guide dogs in general are amazing i mean and and there's something very very profound and um it's uh there's a word that comes along with uh, with having a guide dog anybody who knows what that word is it's forward and we you know most people will say that word and we don't think anything of it you know forward whatever it is but when you're sitting there and you're holding that harness for the first time and you say geo forward and now you are moving at a pace that you would never walk at with a cane and you in your in your instructor is standing behind you saying you know go with her go with her because you're you want to pull back talk about fear and and you're now walking at at speeds that you would never walk and you are completely trusting yourself to an animal and it, it, it's some and it's it's incredible to, to to think about what what what's happening and now you're you're moving and you're moving independently for the most part and and it's a very different you know response to obstacles and I'll tell you you know we're, we're in the middle of winter and we're dealing with ice and all this stuff and most of the time people wouldn't want to leave the house and I, she's figured out but yes as you pointed out she is spectacular so uh, guiding eyes for the blind. Um, and, uh, the gentleman who's the CEO of it has retinitis pigmentosa and, uh, Thomas panic is his name. And Thomas, uh, they, they created a running dog program. It's kind of spectacular in that they have now found a way with dogs with certain energy 
to if they could guide it high enough speeds while they're walking sometimes and they, they test them to see if they will run or if they're desired and geo will run with me and she runs at uh absurd paces um a lot faster than i ever uh wanted to go i did a um uh here she comes by the way uh this was driving her crazy seeing me through the room um this is her buddy yeah well i have two dogs i have my my dog dog too which is his name is wrigley wrigley field stone um yeah there's no there's it's hard to try to figure out where i come from but um (laughs) they (laughs) i did a a dry land uh biathlon this summer uh and a buddy of mine so geo was my guide and then another friend was running with us it's about this was about a five kilometer run and we were running at sub six minute miles. And the guy looks over and he says, I can run this fast, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but my dog said, that's what we're doing. She, she turns into that sea biscuit, that, that horse dog that, that just has to be ahead. And it is, it's actually rather embarrassing, but she does not understand moderation. But what's crazy is that she's guiding at those paces. She's not just running. She's guiding just like she would if we were on a sidewalk on a normal Tuesday uh, going there. And and it's 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 spectacular. Um, There is no relationship in the world quite like this. Yeah, I'm uh, not only am I madly in love with her, but she's I I don't know where I would have been through this covid without her. You know, finding humans to run with is not as easy as people think it is sometimes. And I go right out my front door with her. Yeah, I I know I have colleagues who have vision loss and I've been the seeing seeing eye human and just walking with people who have vision loss can be really challenging if you're not used to doing it. So to see Geo running with you, the I the one video I saw of you running through this kind of rocky, grassy terrain, I'm like that just looks crazy but yeah, that, that that is a little crazy she and i actually walked hiked that this morning through the snow that same area you're, you're referring to and i was terrified the whole time but man when we get down she gets a big hug and you know it's it's spectacular because she she's like come on blind guy we're going you know <laughs> none of this stuff we're, we're you know going. that's that's that she's in yeah. charge yeah so as as we get toward the end of our conversation here, you, you sort of hinted at what this answer might be, but let's go right to, to the heart of the question. So for somebody young, old, whatever situation who is hearing this and thinking, wow, Michael's done so much, maybe I'd like to take a step forward and try something. What, what advice would you give somebody with visual impairment who wants to do something new and has some apprehension about it? Well, I would first say that apprehension is a great thing to have. Again, that just, that just comes along with it. But I would say two things. One is you have to teach yourself to be your own advocate. It is very, very helpful. And, and I would say the same thing to some of the parents that are listening to this because there's a, there's, there is a right way to advocate for your kids at the same time. But for those individuals, definitely walk before you run. Take a very slow approach to it. Find your, your way to do it and, and baby steps. Don't, don't try to go to the finish line. 
uh, so fast. And I think that's actually, it's kind of funny with something that I learned in my own racing was to celebrate the start line. The finish line will take care of itself, but to pay attention to every moment that you have, just like we do when we're walking down the street, you know, right foot, left foot, cane, cane, you know, however we're doing it. But what I would say to those people is that apprehension is good. It's healthy, but don't think about the thing that you want to do way down the road. Think about today, you know, whether or not for some of us, it's just walking down the street to get to our mailbox or, or whatever it is, is a big day for us to, to realize that it's very normal to feel that way. And I will say that all full, fully able, fully sighted people, they have the same apprehension when they're doing this stuff. There's no, there's no question. Water seeks its own level, but we have that plus one factor. And if you have ushers, it's a plus two factor. And we found a way to, you know, for people to lose both their sight and their hearing. And um, it, it's very, very important just to take a big step back and just remember to breathe and arm yourself with as many tools as you can and find that person or people that to do it with you, that you don't have to do it by yourself. And there are wonderful people and fantastic organizations out there that would love to do these things with you. Thanks for sharing that. I think I think your stories and just coming out and saying that directly will will help inspire people. And so one more thing I want to mention, and, and I believe this podcast will air before this webinar happens, but it's a webinar on a paranoic Nordic competition, right? Or on the basic yes. idea of para, paranordic competition. I've never said paranordic out loud. Hard. So <laughs> it looks easy. And you and just so people know, paranordic, at least in our context, is P-A-R-A dash N-O-R-D-I-C. And if people are interested in the webinar, it's on February 19th. And if you go to the Foundation Fighting Blindness website, it's fightingblindness.org. And if you search on Paranordic, you'll find it. If you go to the events tab, you'll find it. Spend a minute just telling us about what that's all about. Sure. Uh, well, you know, the webinar came from a conversation with Jason Menzo and I and just him, you know, running with it as as he does and bringing all you and your great colleagues into the mix. Um, Nordic skiing is your cross-country skiing, okay? And yeah, yeah, there's three aspects to it. You've got your your classic cross-country that is a very linear movement. It's almost like running in the snow, but you're in these tracks. And a lot of blind people like that because it's very tactile. And then you have a skate uh, skiing option in the in the Nordic skiing, which is it's more of a lateral move. So if you could picture your, yourself ice skating, but with long, skinny skis. And then there's the biathlon aspect of it, uh, which is actually shooting uh, non-projectile weapons, an audio rifle specifically made for blind people that I have here in my house that I can practice it there. And that involves the skate skiing along with it. But what's amazing about it, Ben, is a lot of these sports that we have to do uh, with others, like if you're on a bicycle, you're on the back of a tandem, right? If you're running, sometimes you're running tethered to somebody. With skiing, it's strictly audible cues. So when Gordon was talking about it, he wasn't tethered to anybody. He just had somebody saying left, right, turn, 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 and giving them 
uh, audible cues, and he got to feel the freedom of skiing. Now, with Nordic skiing, you're also going up the mountains. As you are going down, you're going uphill and downhill, and it's a it's a constant movement. It's not uh, this, and it's it's a wonderful opportunity. And what's important for me to add is that I didn't know that it exists. All my years of Ironmans and being a fearful during the winters, I used to get so scared. I would actually go to Southern Hemisphere countries like New Zealand and South America to race Ironmans to avoid the winters because I just thought of the winter as this very oppressive time for people with blindness, ice outside, all these things. And although, of course, I had my little, the, the Gordon on my shoulders saying, hey, get over that, you know, embrace it. But I found it in the way of, of Nordic skiing as opposed to the Alpine skiing, which is also wonderful, but, you know, chairlift up, you know, down. I like this one because it's a lot more active and it's aerobic, a little healthier as a full body uh, experience. And so my hope is, yes, there's a competition side of things. And it is a Paralympic sport that's ha- you know happening right now um, over in Beijing, but the, it's the recreational stuff that I'm really trying to push. Okay, and yes, I compete. I'm doing a ski marathon this week, and I'm doing a you know uh, in, in Crested Butte. Um, but I, it's the recreational side of just being outside and experiencing that feeling of of being on the snow and that freedom. And, you know, yes, you're getting audible cues, but you're not, you're just, it's just you, your skis, the snow and nature. And it's just a spectacular feeling that I really, really wish that more people with vision impairments uh, knew existed for them. And that's what, that's what my hope is from this is that it's going to be the beginning of great things to come. And we can learn how to advocate for, for the masses of people out there that don't know it exists. And I don't care if you're nine years old or you're 90 years old. Um, it, it's open to you. Well, thanks so much for talking about Paranordic competition and just what it's like to be out there. And again, if people are interested in the webinar, it's on February 19th. Just search on Paranordic or go to the events tab on our website. And when you search Paranordic, do it on the Foundation Fighting Blindness website, fightingblindness.org. And I'll remind our listeners if you have questions about podcasts in general or whatever, um, you can email those to podcast at fightingblindness.org. That's podcast at fightingblindness.org. Michael, it's just been a joy to see you again and chat with you. And I really appreciate you sharing your perspectives and stories and geo with us on the podcast. It's been great to have you. Thank you. So thanks everyone out there for listening to Eye on the Cure. Come back for our next episode. And again, Michael Stone, thanks for joining us. Hope to hear from everybody. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.